welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. We are going to go ahead and jump into a time in in God's Word and Bible study. Uh, We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be starting, um, continuing on in in chapter 9 from last week and uh, I think a couple weeks back as well, um, starting in verse 38. But the title of our message this morning is, The Kingdom at All Costs. The Kingdom at All Costs. Let me ask a quick question of you guys. How, how great are you with difficult conversations, of, of maybe awkward conversations, or, or times where you've had to confront someone? Usually it's not the funnest thing in the world. In fact, I think it's one of just the least fun things in the world, to, to confront someone over maybe a behavioral problem, or if you're in a supervisory capacity at work to confront someone um, for various kind of work issues. And it's hard, right? Isn't it such a difficult thing? I think no one in that room enjoys those kind of conversations. And for that reason, usually for the person who's confronting the person who's being confronted has another person with them to like, hey, like back me up in case this goes sideways. And often it does. Sometimes people blow up when there's conflict. Sometimes they take it well and, and maybe they're stoic and you're kind of thinking like, did they receive it? Did they, did they hear the words that come out of my mouth? Or sometimes just maybe they'll receive it and they'll change and they'll come out better for it. And I think if, if you have been on the receiving end of maybe some hard conversations some rebukes, some exhortations, and have come out better in the end. You know the feeling that, hey, these are hard conversations to have, but they're also important. And really, anything of value, any mission of value, any any work that's of value should and often involves a hard conversation to make hard decisions, to have points of conflict. If it's worth anything, it's worth getting over and getting through points of conflict. I remember when I took, in college, I took a few creative writing classes, including screenwriting classes. And I think part of the exercise is not just, you know, learning how to write better and and learning words and learning some basics and short stories and poetry and and screenwriting formatting. But a fundamental part of the the class was really part of your um, like personal growth in the sense that there's a moment usually in every class where everyone reads your work or you read your work to everyone and people criticize it. They poke holes in it. They say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And guess what? Part of the rule typically is you have to sit there and you have to take it. You can't defend yourself. You can't interrupt them. You can't cut them short. You take it and you sit there and you wallow in your self-misery for a little bit. But then you realize, oh, that person has a point. That person says, you know, this can be better. And therefore, I think they're right. And suddenly the end product is better. So once again, if anything's of value, 
it's worth having a hard conversation about. And I'll even go as far to say, if you don't have a hard conversation about something, then you might not have something of value in the end. It's usually through tough conversations, through conflicts, and through even personal sacrifice that we come out as better people, but also that the, the end goal for which we're working will be incredible. And in this passage today, in, in Mark chapter 9, we're coming to a series of statements and teachings of Jesus that are actually Jesus having a hard conversation with his disciples. And it's a conversation that's hard primarily because the subject he's talking to is of exceeding and supreme value. Jesus is talking about the very kingdom of heaven and the costs thereof and the things involved and the, the things that you'll have to personally sacrifice in order to see the kingdom of heaven. And so because it's such a valuable thing, it's worth having the conversation about, even though the conversation is hard. The teaching is hard. And so in, we're going to start off with kind of a, a place in our passage where Jesus transitions from another point and another kind of uh, argument the disciples raise, and he kind of redirects them to a different point, and he starts and transitions into these card conversations. So we'll start, go ahead, um, and read with me in Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 9, verse 38, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, continuing on a conversation. And it says, John said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward, or be able soon afterward, to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. So our passage here, we, we jump, right, jump right into a passage in which Jesus had been talking about what greatness is. And we learned last week about true greatness, that who, who is great above all is actually going to be the servant of all. And this really does culminate in the very next chapter in Mark, which we'll get to in a, in a couple weeks, where Jesus is talking about just the, the goal of discipleship is to be the servant of people and, and how Jesus came himself to be a servant. And so it's a conversation about greatness. And John saw this, the disciple John saw this as an opportunity to bring up an interesting case. And it was in the case of someone who was casting out demons or at least attempting to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. This was something the disciples couldn't even do themselves in, the, the, in this last chapter, or, or earlier in this chapter. But it seems to be focusing on John's concern that, hey, okay, well, we have this lesson about greatness. We're, let's say, okay, let's say we're all equals. Okay, that's fine. But at least this guy over here, he's not in our faction. And so therefore, are we... Should we, should we stop him? We actually, John went ahead and told him, told Jesus that, hey, we tried to stop this guy because, it, because he wasn't with us. 
He did it. He wasn't doing this without the, you know, explicit approval of Jesus. And it seemed to be, if nothing else, maybe like, you know, copyright infringement or something like that. The unsanctioned use of Jesus' name to do great works. And so maybe John's point was, well, even though, you know, you know, we're not, I might not be greater than the other disciple, but at least we know this guy is not as great as we are, or maybe that was his thinking. But Jesus' answer is, is fascinating because John might have said, or John might have expected Jesus to say, okay, yes, um, this person is, is not with us. And, you know, because Jesus has been a very decisive figure in his time. But Jesus actually says, What does he say? Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward, able soon afterward to speak evil of me. We've heard a lot of teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and many of them are hard about the the cost of discipleship. About, hey, think twice before you just say, yes, I'm going to be your disciple. Because these are hard things. There's going to be a cost to this. And then suddenly Jesus seems to be going like soft or or ecumenical or, hey, we're all in this together. He, He was not against us as far as. And so don't stop that guy who's casting out demons in my name. And so what, what exactly is this? Because Jesus does allude to people who do speak evil of him. But he's saying this guy who's casting out demons, doing mighty works in his name, is not going to soon afterwards speak evil of him. What is Jesus doing here? He's addressing John's kind of larger assumption about what is the the kingdom of God, kind of what is this kingdom this place and this uh, church that, that we're establishing, what, what delineates who's in the in crowd and who's in the out crowd? And that's why Jesus gives the proverb, kind of proverb-like statement right here in Mark 9, 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus's point to, to John is not whether they're with them in their faction or among their friends and close associates, but rather whether someone is with him, whether someone confesses the name of Jesus. And so it's kind of an interesting statement in which Jesus is saying, well, the unifying factor here for this guy then the reason you should not stop his ministry of casting out demons is because he is confessing my name, he is with me. And you're not going to see him um, go crazy and, and go, go off somewhere and start to speak evil of me immediately after doing this. It's not very likely that this will happen. And so it's an interesting statement from Jesus that does anticipate, I mean, number one, and, and divisions and differences within the church. We sometimes hear, you know, there are so many divisions in the church, and likely as you drove into church today, you, you passed probably 12 churches to come here. And you might be thinking, like, what, why are there so many, you know, divisions in these things? And sure enough, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholics blame the Protestants, like, hey, you guys split up from us. And then, you know, we who are non-denominational but come from a Baptist tradition, we might say, you know, the Presbyterians and the, the Episcopalians, they're, you know, they're, they're not doing it right or something like that. And we think, oh, these are, these are major divisions. But really... Really, in this case, their divisions have always kind of existed in the church in the sense that some people think they're in, they have this faction, and then some people think, oh, this faction's outside of them. It happened in the early church where some people were with the preacher Paul. Some people also liked the preacher Apollos, and they'd say, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're divided on that case. But the, Paul's response to something like that is saying, was Christ divided? 
because he who is with Christ is part of the church universal. We might have differences of opinion and different practices of worship, but essentially the, the, the test that Jesus gives us eliminates the need for to make our own, you know, um, a litmus test for who's in the communion of God. It's he who confesses the Lord Christ. It's not a political or, or a social delineation, but it's a confessional. Is this person confessing Christ? Is this person doing things in his name? And in this time, it's not just using the name of Jesus that to, to get gain as, as we might do in, in our culture, but just think about the, the amount of, of ire that the name of Jesus would have brought up in this time. Jesus had already been teaching and teaching very controversial things, and he already brought out the, the anger of the Pharisees and many of the religious leaders, and it was very common for people to speak evil of him. And during this time, for someone to actually take the name of Jesus, to take ownership, Jesus is saying, that's inviting persecution on yourself, that's inviting even conflict on yourself, and therefore, that person seems to be the real deal. If, if they're actually taking on the name of Jesus, which is not and extremely popular given his teachings. So thus Jesus is not talking about giving sanction to you know, charlatans or cults who use the name of Jesus for personal gain, but it's taking his name really when it's not popular. But the particular formulation that we see right here of, of Mark chapter nine, verse 40, kind of indicates that this kind of statement holds some additional kind of resonance for anyone following Christ as a disciple in the sense that anyone who makes a step towards discipleship is worthy of honor and encouragement. And Jesus kind of turns it around to them and talks to them and says, in Mark chapter 9, verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. While the disciples were concerned about giving kind of tacit endorsement to this other unknown figure, we don't know who he was. He was casting out demons evidently in the name of Jesus. They were kind of concerned about that, but Jesus uses this opportunity, this story, this anecdote to talk about the weight and the significance of anyone who chooses to carry the name of Christ. Anyone who picks up the mantle of discipleship, or I should say picks up the cross of discipleship and decides to follow Jesus Christ. And to follow Christ is such a valuable thing, Jesus is saying, that if anyone makes the smallest gesture of honor to that sort of belonging, to anyone who belongs to Christ, then that does not escape the very attention of God. That deserves reward. The implication here is, yes, you will receive, not only will this person receive reward, but they will receive reward and, and uh, appropriation from the Lord that God himself does not miss it, even if a cup of water was handed to someone who bore the name of Christ. Jesus is bringing them into the larger picture of the kingdom of God, the larger picture of discipleship. The most valuable thing ever is to, the most valuable thing we can receive is eternal life, is the kingdom of heaven, is life forever 
with God. And he's trying to bring them into a larger picture of what that is. It involves sacrifice, yes, but it involves also encouragement. And so another way we might look at um, the, the verse 40 is, you know, if, if no one is actively persecuting you, really take that as encouragement, you know, take that as a win, take that as a, as the kids say, take that as a W and, and keep going in your walk with Christ. Don't become hostile with them. Don't strive with them for no reason. Just serve one another. Stay on task in your faith and use that opportunity to continue on in your faith. But as we continue on in this, in this passage, there's something Mark kind of includes in these following verses kind of organizationally with the teachings of Jesus, which kind of speaks to the flip side. Yes, if anyone's taking a step towards discipleship, taking a step to taking on the name of Christ, they should be encouraged in their walk. But now Jesus begins to describe the opposite and the judgments that are due and that God has saved toward those who stumble the followers of Christ, people who inhibit their walk. And so we get some very serious words beginning in verse 42. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. For the, to the unquenchable fire, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you, sorry, it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. He continues on to say, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So we've talked about the rewards of, you know, honoring someone who's following Christ. Now, Jesus talks now about a different sort of retribution or repayment, and that is judgment. So before we get to really some of the remarkable word pictures and the kind of vivid analogies that Jesus is using when he's talking about judgment, let's let look a little bit more at the particular case that Jesus says would, would elicit and in, in, involve judgment on a given person. He's saying in verse 42 that God reserves a special type of punishment for those who cause these little ones to sin. If we want to connect his words with some verses earlier in this passage and more words, were, uh, words, verses that we studied last week, his references to little ones likely was a gesture to the child he had brought into their midst as an illustration in which he used this child as saying, 
whoever accepts this child, or verse 37, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And he uses this child as an example of he who, who cares for even the smallest one. And so the child is, a, is an illustration or an emblem of, of someone who has little agency, of someone who is often overlooked, someone who cannot return the favor if they are shown um, a favor, or, you know, basically just anyone who is sheer helpless, sheer and helpless. I sometimes think about the fact that um, my daughter has a little piggy bank toy and whenever she loses her coins in it, she goes, Daddy, I, I have no money. And I sometimes I think like, yeah, it's true. Like you have no money. And that's like the best definition you can give. You just don't have money. You're completely dependent on this. And, but really, if you think about it, and, and, as, um, and I'm sure Robert will, will talk more about um, next week, children are often the, the, the end and on the, on the receiving end of some of the worst injustices in the world. And it's not because, you know, um, it's not, be, or it's, it's usually because like they can't speak up for themselves. It, it, because they can't defend themselves, because they can't hire a lawyer and go to court for themselves. And they're always the most vulnerable group in any culture. Um, I, I don't know who it was, but I just remember hearing the quote over the last couple of weeks that um, children aren't resilient, they just can't explain how you hurt them. And to be certain, God sees all things, and he sees all injustices, and he sees injustices inflicted on children. Matthew 18, 10, Jesus speaking, and he's talking about children again. And he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So the sum of it, of of one application of this is just that God loves children. God defends children. And that's why we, we feel as a, as a church the need to, to advocate for the um, unborn and to, to pray for them because God deeply cares about them. And of course, we'll talk no, next week more about that. But in a larger sense, Jesus is using this child as an illustration of something larger. And that is referring to anyone who belongs to Christ. If we want to connect it to verse 40, it is anyone who belongs to to Christ, anyone who might be considered Christ's disciple. Whoever would cause a disciple of Christ to stumble deserves this judgment. And that's the particular infraction that's so detestable to the Lord. Causing a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ to sin or to to be um, led astray. One commentator um, by the name of James Edwards kind of describes this phrase of of causing to sin um, as also to to cause to stumble or to offend. And in this instance refers to destroying the faith of a fellow believer or causing a believer to fall away from God. Just as you and I can encourage someone in their faith, we can also cause one another to stumble. But I think there's special judgment for people who specifically target and who prey on believers, especially young believers, to lead them away from the faith. Maybe people who are younger in the faith. And there's an entire industry. You might check it if, if you go to Apple Podcasts and look into Christianity Podcasts. There's Christian podcasts of really people who have left the faith, who've kind of come back to the Christian audience and say, here's reasons why you should leave the faith. And it's absolutely detestable. And if anything 
if, if any of these things are, are true in a person, that you're actively leading someone away from the faith, you're leading them away from life, and Jesus is saying that you're better off dead. That's the, that's the illustration here in verse 42. And in fact, he's more specific than I would be. Uh, he says, you're better off drowning to death. You're better off tying uh, someone to tie a millstone to your neck and to be drowning to death. A millstone could be in the first century, you know, something probably 100 to about 500 pounds. You can't imagine the agony of that. And so Jesus is, this is a serious thing that Jesus is talking about. But after kind of lingering on the seriousness of this verse, we're going to continue on to the next few verses where we get a larger picture of judgment, a more vivid description of judgment. And Jesus turns the language to each of his disciples and by extension, all of us who are um, reading it today, Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he starts talking about personal causes to sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And then he says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And then he goes to say, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. And so we, we read here, about the terror of hell. Because he's using these, these illustrations to say, it's better for you to not be drugged down by the sin into hell. It's, it's better for you to cut whatever is causing you to sin, causing you hell bound, cut that off. Otherwise you will never see life. How's that for, for a difficult conversation? And I think it's particularly difficult because Jesus doesn't come out in verse 50 or 51. He doesn't say, well, I didn't really mean that. I, I was just exaggerating. He kind of gives us no outs. Jesus brings us to the edge until we sober up a little bit. And he lets us, he lets us linger there. So we have to start with the question, how literal is Jesus being? How should we take this? Are we, are we biblically mandated to mutilate ourselves, to cut off our hands and feet and our eye because they've caused us to sin? Now, of course, there, there is a way in which we can use our hands and our feet to sin. We can steal, we can maim, we can, we can walk to places we shouldn't go, we can look at things we shouldn't. But I believe that Jesus is intentionally shocking them using kind of this extreme analogy to talk about the costs of discipleship. And while our hands and our feet can be used to commit sin, they're not the cause of our sins. And so Jesus' point, which is very serious, is he's saying eradicate any self-administered cause of sin that is in your life. And it's this thing that's heavy. It's this thing that's serious. You cannot overstate it because according to Christ, and if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, your fight against sin really is a life and death struggle. Is you're, you're, you're fighting all the time against sin. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 through 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. If you have a King James Bible in that, in that place in Colossians, you'll read the word mortify. Put it to death. Kill it. 
I think the lesson is simple. Just be killing your sin. Kill the sin. As was put by the Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your fight against sin is, is a very even, is a test to see really if you are a disciple. Because often if you confess Christ or something like that and you, you act as a Christian, sometimes if a person is not really converted, they'll fail in their fight of sin and sin will absolutely wipe them out and they'll be hell bound. And that's what Jesus is warning you about. Hey, if you are a believer, you will continue to fight sin. You will continue to cut off sin. And here's the proposition that we need to hear in this passage. Even if you have to limp across the finish line, even if you feel incomplete, it's worth it because you're entering into life. It's a small price to pay to enter into heaven, to enter into glory. Whatever, you, whatever it costs you to pay to enter heaven, you should pay it. Enter the kingdom of God at all costs and by any means. That's what Jesus is saying. But you might be asking, what exactly are the costs? Well, most often, and this is where it hurts, the costs to be a disciple of Christ is leaving our own sin. It's, it's repentance. It's the things that are in our own lives and in our own hearts that are completely against the desires of God, the desires that God wants for us. Of course, we have a lot of external causes which um, really do cause us to sin and which should be removed. You know, the influence of friends, um, TV, uh, you know, going to liquor stores. It might be just like the YouTube app on your phone. We can get rid of those things. But the most pernicious causes of our own sins are our own wills and our own desires, which need to be taken under control. In James chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, we read, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, we are our own worst enemy. The problem is that we build our lives around our, our own desires. Our very seat of our will is our reason for getting up in the morning. And so you're thinking, why would I, you know, this is my reason for living. You know, this, this sinful desire I have. Jesus is saying it's better to feel maybe unfulfilled in this world and to enter heaven. It's better to say no to yourself if that, even if it makes you not feel whole, even if it's maybe a detriment to your own feeling in need of self-expression. Jesus is saying, whatever you, you have wrapped your identity in and it's still causing you to sin, that's the thing you should cut out of your life because better to be maimed in this life and let go of sin and to be made whole by Christ in eternity. To some extent, it seems like it would be a simpler task to just cut off your foot or something, right? And so Jesus refers to the stakes of this, and the stakes are pretty high. And Jesus fleshes them out in, in the, what we would call as, as believers as the doctrine of hell. That is, Jesus is talking about hell as a place of judgment, 
a place to where people go when they are unrepentant and remaining in their sin. Specifically, Jesus calls this place, um, when he refers to hell in this passage, the word he uses is Gehenna, which in the first century was uh, a dump heap, a rubbish heap, but formerly was a place of human sacrifice. And in short, it came to embody and signify a place of torment and suffering. And so Jesus wasn't just talking about the, the town dump when he was saying this is a place of unquenchable fire. And this is a place in verse 48 where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In that last verse, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, which is actually the very last verse of Isaiah, which is talking about the final judgment of the enemies of God. And so just real quickly, Jesus' teaching about hell um, in this particular passage isn't fun, but we should just remember three things about hell in that hell is a place of torment, in that it is a place of fire and suffering. Hell is a place of finality, and there is nothing after hell. It's a place of ultimate judgment. And also, hell, as far as we can determine, is an infinite state. In other words, the fire of judgment is never quenched. There are many who kind of debate on the nature of hell, kind of what the Bible says about it. And those are discussions that happen in theological circles and, and seminaries. But I think the most influential things are teachings on hell for us is usually in the culture, in cartoons and comedies. And it's really kind of ridiculous and it's sad that that's the case. But Jesus never spoke of this way, spoke of this topic of hell with any kind of lightness. But he always talked about it with heaviness and sobriety. And let me tell you, the reason he was so sober about hell was, yes, he doesn't want people to go there. He doesn't want people to face judgment, but also because his teaching on heaven is also so serious and carries so much weight. And so not only do we have the terrors of hell to, to kind of wake us and sober us up as believers and as disciples of Christ, but we also have the motivation of heaven. Yes, the doctrine of hell should um, bring us to a place of repentance. It should terrify us. It should make us think about our unsaved friends and family and want to minister to them. But it's the motivation of heaven that changes our desires. And it should be our great motivation, the thing that wakes us up every day. That's why Jesus is saying it's better to enter into life even crippled than to go to hell as, as a whole body, if you will. Remember that the invitation Jesus is extending right here is not simply fire and judgment. You guys are all going to burn. But he's saying this is an invitation of this is the kingdom of God and this is serious business. And it's a great thing. And that's why he is so serious about this. The seriousness with which Jesus treated hell is deeply tied to the glory and the greatness of the heaven that awaits us, the very kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 say this, says this, we have a great motivation from the Apostle Paul's words. He says, if then, if you have been raised with Christ, and he's talking to believers, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Heaven is a great motivator in all of this. Heaven is something we can look forward to. The kingdom of God should be our key goal in everything that we do. 
the Puritan George Swinnock said this, we may say of this work of Christianity, there is none like it. There is, this is soul work. This is God work. This is eternity work. Therefore of greatest weight and requireth us all to make it our business. And so what does this look like in practice? Well, Jesus ends this passage with a couple verses that are um, kind of mysterious and enigmatic. Um, verse 49 says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And then he goes on to say, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. But I think it ties off some of these teachings very well. Jesus is referring to salt kind of as a, a, something that gives believers their distinctiveness. And he's saying that everyone who is a believer will be salted with fire. In other words, they'll face some sort of tribulation in this life. They have the great mercy of not being on a trajectory of uh, going to hell, but they will endure conflict, persecution, and suffering they might lose that hand. They might lose that foot. They might endure great sacrifice in their own life, but that will only make you more Christ-like in your character and will only make you a more genuine and authentic believer. In the end, we will be more fit for the kingdom of God when we go through conflict, judgment, make personal sacrifice, and live a life of repentance. And it also should remind us here that what we do on earth has eternal consequences and that the life of discipleship has eternal reverberations and eternal rewards in eternity. So three things I, I would like to, to close with really quickly. Number one is simply just a question. Do you belong to Christ? What Jesus makes clear here above anything else is that the life of discipleship is the most vital calling of any person's life. There's no help to this life that someone gives that won't be rewarded, but also there's no hindrance to this life that won't go unpunished. And because of the stakes, you've probably noticed right here two modes of living that encompass all of life, to belong to Christ and to believe in Christ to belong to Christ and to believe in him. What a great thing that is. But if we want also evidence of the seriousness of sin, we can go no further than looking at the crucified Christ who, who by the means of going to the cross offered himself to purchase us so that we might belong to him and to deliver us into eternal life. And just remember that it's in clinging close. It's in that embracing of that belonging that we learn and we discover the precious promises of heaven and we continue to grow in our faith. There's great comfort, therefore, when we look at these stern warnings to also remember that if we cling close to Christ, if we live a life of repentance and we follow him, we are promised that Christ will keep us. Christ will keep us. What do I mean by that? In Jude 24, 
we, the author describes Jesus as he who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from sinning, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So if you belong to Christ, if you call yourself a believer, if you have confessed the name of Christ and believe in him, cling close to him because he will keep you. He will keep you unstained. He will keep you from sin. And if you have fallen short, if you have committed sin, if you feel like you're in a cycle of sin, you can go to him and he will change your heart and bring you into a place of repentance. Secondly, and these are shorter points, Settle for nothing less than the kingdom of God. Yes, there are habits we can implement in our lives to make us um, more moral people, better people. We can get up, we can make our bed, we can get, insert good things in our life. But really nothing will take us as far as just being motivated and enraptured by the expectation of God's kingdom. So settle for nothing less than the kingdom of God. But also, how do we live our lives in expectation of God's kingdom and on our way there? We should also, number three, experience the kingdom on earth. What is the kingdom on earth like? Do we try to put, you know, righteous people in in government power? You know, do we put people in the California legislature or elect good people to the city council? No, we do this by being at peace with one another which is Jesus' last exhortation in this chapter to his disciples. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. We are expecting the glories of the kingdom of God. We are sacrificing great things in our own life. We're all on a journey of continual repentance. We're having the conversations, the hard conversations with each other, I hope, to spur one another on. We're reaping the rewards, and we're expecting the rewards of helping one another and encouraging one another in our discipleship. But we can also experience the kingdom of God today when we are at peace with one another, when we fellowship and communion with one another and being thankful for one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the glories of your kingdom. And Lord, we also thank you for the hard things in your scripture. Things which sometimes give us chills down our spine. Things which sober us up things which bring us to the edge and bring us to terms with our own sins. I ask, Lord, that in here, in this building, and for anyone who's listening to my voice, that they would not sell themselves short, that they would not let any sin any preoccupation with this world, keep them from the kingdom of God. That, Lord, they would take a serious evaluation of their own life. And that, Lord, all of us would take evaluations of our own life, that if there's any cause of sin in our life, that you would reveal it to us in this moment. 
and that, Lord, you would give us the grace to repent. We thank you, Lord, for stern warnings. We thank you also for great mercies. And it's in your hand that we commit our very lives. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.